CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you are in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today on the show, we're celebrating the evolution of ETFs as the nation's first-ever ETF turns 30. That's the Spider S&P 500 ETF. Ticker symbol is SPY, S-P-Y. It's the largest and the most heavily traded ETF in the world. We'll dive deep into the history of this ETF, the revolution of indexing, and assess whether ETFs are poised to take over mutual funds anytime soon. Here's my conversation with Rory Tobin. He's the head of Global Spider ETF Business at State Street Global Advisors, along with Todd Rosenbluth. He's the head of research at Vetify. Rory, this is, I call it the ETF that launched 1,000 ships. It's still the flagship ETF for you and the ETF community. Why has SPY remained such a popular investment vehicle? It's popular amongst the buy and hold crowd. It's popular amongst active traders as well. I think, Bob, thank you for having me. Nice to be here and nice to see you too, Todd. I think SPY has become so popular just because of its liquidity. SPY really has extraordinary liquidity in terms of how it trades on an intraday basis. Uh, It trades on a penny-wise spread, trades $39 billion dollars. And we have days when you have five, six, seven billion dollars of inflows into SPY in terms of creations. Some days you have five, six, seven billion dollars of outflows in SPY. But that liquidity gives real confidence to investors, large investors, small investors, that regardless of the market conditions, they can trade in and out of the S&P at any point in time. And it's particularly important for those who are trading options and futures that they really need to know that they can get that underlying basket liquidity and get really good execution. So for that reason, it really is the granddaddy of all ETFs. So that, that's the secret. I mean, the volume just amazes me. Uh, I mean, I estimate 32 billion in trades, eight, $400, 80, 80 million shares a day. You said 39, but it's the most liquid ETF in the world. And I, I wonder if you have done studies. Does What percentage of it, the volume is from the active trading community, which is more buy and hold? Uh, because they both seem to use it. And that, that seems to be the source of the success. Correct. I think you're right. We, we've not, we've not, it's, it's pretty hard, as you know, getting specific data on holdings can be a challenge in the ETF industry. We've done a lot of work over the last number of years to actually understand who holds it and particularly their buying or selling behaviors and what drives that. The biggest community that trades by, by far, is the broker dealer community, the hedge fund community, and that community of investors, those large asset owners, asset managers that really want to be able to trade and make very significant asset allocation decisions quickly, but they also need to get that guaranteed execution. The buy and hold investors, some of the smaller investors, they might be more willing to, they may be looking for maybe a, a different type of, of instrument. We have one of those two, SPLG. But they may be look, they may be less concerned about liquidity and more concerned about, about cost. And so hence they might make a different decision based on that. But for the pure liquidity, for that tightness of bid-ask spread, when you look at the total cost of ownership, SPY really gives people a very strong value proposition. And that's why the those large broker dealers, those large hedge funds do use it on a very regular basis, and particularly that option and derivative community that, on, that upon which SPY is based. Yeah. 
You know, uh, Todd, uh, you, you know this. Spy is still king of the hill, uh, it, but it's got competitors out there. Vanguard's got a competitor. Uh, BlackRock's got a competitor. E- even State Street has an in-house competitor that's cheaper. The one thing that I've noticed, everyone's noticed, is Spy's been having outflows in the last few years. The competitors, including their own internal competitor, have had inflows. They're, they're cheaper. Spy's nine basis points. Everything else, their competitors are three basis points. Uh, what, what's driving uh, that dynamic there? Is there a reason we need to keep that at nine basis points? Maybe I should ask uh, him as well. But What's going on here? Well, SPY came out and is for institutions and is primarily used by institutions based on what we think about at Vetify. But there are competitors that have offered products for three basis points. So you mentioned the iShares product, IVV, the Vanguard product, VOO, as well as SPLG, which is the other State Street product, the Spider Portfolio S&P 500 ETF. And if you're a longer-term investor, if you're holding on for even intermediate term, six, nine months, 12 months, or even for your overall retirement, then three basis points, really, that savings makes a big difference. And so investors that are holding on for the longer term for their retirement, they're shifting out from mutual funds to ETFs, a cheaper product from an expense ratio standpoint has been better, and that's opened up the doors for many more products. There's a lot of products out there now that SPY has come to market. Rory, does that worry you at all that that the the three other competitors, including your own internal competitor, has had some out has had inflows? Spies had some outflows. You're still king of the hill, but I guess you don't feel the need to do anything here, right? At this point, I mean, obviously, it's, it has something to do with the, the 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 nine basis point fee there. We look at it all the time, Bob, uh, and you're absolutely right. And uh, Todd has made good points there. You know, buy and hold investor may make a different price decision depending on their holding period. When we, and when we look at SPLG, SPLG is more geared, it's a, it's a lower price point. So the actual size of the share is, is, is one-tenth the size of SPY. It's optimized more for a retail investor versus institutional investor. SPY is a larger chunk in terms of trading in and trading out, the minimum creation, redemption size, et cetera. And, and the feedback we consistently get from the big users of SPY, these are those asset owners, asset managers, broker-dealer communities, it's very clearly is, is don't mess with what works. And, and they tell us that um, you know, for their holding periods, for their requirements, you're still dealing with a fund that's sub-10 basis points. And in today's world, if you look at where a lot of mutual funds trade, where a lot of other instruments trade, sub-10 basis points is a pretty strong value proposition. So for many of those users and uh, traders of SPY on a regular basis, their message to us is, is it works and it works very effectively. And we need that liquidity, so don't mess with that. So we've stuck with that. We take survey findings on a regular basis, but we stuck with it. When we got some feedback about that buy and hold investor base, we did launch SPLG a number of years ago. And that's really working well for us in the segment of the marketplace. Yeah, and that's the answer. They've got a competitor. It's their own competitor. And people can go over there. Nine basis points, by the way, those of you who don't know how to calculate this, is $9 for every $10,000 invested. Still a pretty good deal here. Uh, Todd, uh, you're the sort of... ETF uh, grandmaster here. How do we get to this point where the ETF business is now $7 trillion in the United States? The mutual fund business is, what, 22 or 23 trillion? And yet, this feeling seems to be in the ETF community come the next five, six, seven, eight years, the ETF business could end up to be bigger than the mutual fund business. Do you think that can happen, number one? And number two, how did we get here? Why is it that the ETF business is, is, is seeing inflows every year 
and the mutual fund industry seeing outflows. So I do think we're going to get there. At what point? It's, it's not exactly clear. Is it five years? Is it seven years? Uh, is it 10? But it's going to happen uh, in both our lifetimes, probably when you're still here at CNBC. Um, don't, no, no notice now, Bob. Uh, but what's driving it is people are looking to get exposure to the marketplace. They don't want to pay a lot of money. We're seeing investors move towards index-based products. There's a lot of data that's out there from S&P Dow Jones indices. Morningstar has it as well. That active management struggles against an S&P 500 index. So instead of trying to beat the market, why not just replicate the market and do so for just three basis points? It's also more tax efficient from an ETF structure. So if you are a buy-and-hold investor in a mutual fund, you not only lost money in 2022, but you likely had to pay a capital gains tax as a result of it. If you own SPY or any of its competitors that are three basis points, you didn't have to do that at all. You, you did relatively well versus the active fund, and you didn't have to pay any capital gains. And so that's what's going to drive ETF adoption. Yeah, so there seems to be two things that happen here. Number one is the triumph of indexing, of passive investing, which the concept of which existed before that. Jack Bogle at Vanguard launched his S&P 500 fund in 1976. So the indexing concept has been around before. But then you overlay the ETF wrapper on top of it. And as you mentioned, no minimum purchase, trades intraday, uh, lower costs, uh, more tax efficient. So you're overlaying the index concept over the ETF wrapper. You get a kind of double whammy here. That's the way I explain this. You, you do. And then what's also going to cause mutual funds uh, money moving into ETFs is actually the asset managers that are launching ETF versions of some of their products. So we had companies like Capital Group and DoubleLine and Matthews Asia launch products. Morgan Stanley is going to be launching their first new ETF in, in a couple of weeks. And we're seeing conversions of existing mutual funds into ETFs, not of critical size, but that's going to continue to swing the pendulum in favor of ETFs. And that's a good thing for investors. They're going to pay a lot less. They're going to have capital tax or ta- capital gains efficiency as a result. And the ETF investor, and in general, the investor wins as a result of SPY coming to market 30 years ago. Can you think of anyone out there? It's hard to think of an asset management firm that really hasn't launched an ETF. As you mentioned, Morgan Stanley is the last big one out there. They're about to launch. We're waiting any day now for that to be announced. Right. So they're, they're probably the largest one that comes to mind. Is Dodge and Cox offers a number of mutual funds that they don't have an ETF version of, and they are you know, they have about five or seven different mutual funds, but of, of critical mass. That would be a key milestone that's there. But a number of these firms have come to market and they're going to be down at, at the exchange conference down in Florida, sh- educating investors about their products because they're new to the industry and the ETF business is just different than the mutual fund business. Uh, Rory, uh, I want to just move on a little bit and talk about some other things that State Street offers. You've got a big suite of sector ETFs, S&P sector ETFs around the uh, the S&P 500. Uh, The largest, and and this is what I think is very interesting, the largest one is one of the smallest by market cap. Energy has more money, the Energy uh, Spider Select ETF, which mimics the S&P 500 energy sector, has more money in it than technology does. This is the number one fund out there. And I I guess if I think about it, it's not surprising, but it is surprising considering that technology is magnitudes of order bigger, seven or eight times bigger in terms of market cap. And yet their number one is actually the uh, the energy select uh, ETF for you. You're, you're right, Bob. I think that there's two, fact, there's two factors at play, similar to what, what Thomas told me. You've got 
the market cap move and you've got the flows. Uh, so last year, uh, from a, interestingly enough, from a, a flow perspective, we ended up the year with outflows of a billion in energy and actually inflows of a billion in technology. But the real move in terms of the underlying assets in the fund was the, was the market move. And energy essentially rallied about, uh, we had about 50% increase. Energy started off 2022 at about $27 billion and ended at about $41, $42 billion. Technology started off at about $52 billion and ended the year around 38. So you had a market move that basically took technology down and a market move that took energy up. Now, you might say, why did energy have outflows at the end of last year? Well, we saw big inflows in energy in the first six months, particularly after the Russia invasion of Ukraine. But then as the market started to move up, investors rightly started to take profits. So we saw outflows from the fund perspective at the end of the year, while the underlying NAV was rising because of the market. You know, this is really, I guess, an indicator of market sentiment overall. I mean, obviously, some people saw value in energy and piled into energy, and other people didn't see as much value in technology, and there's not as much in assets under management or technology. Is it that simple? I think it is that simple. So if you owned the S&P 500 a couple of years ago, you had a 3% weighting to the energy sector. And then the first year happened and energy was the top performer. And you looked around and said, wait, why do I have no exposure to the best performing sector? I'm that well diversified. And so Energy Select Sector Spider ETF, it's, it's a good product. It holds Exxon and Chevron in sizable weightings, but it also owns other companies that are benefiting throughout the energy pipeline. And that's going to be a beneficiary for investors that want to overweight their exposure to the energy sector now heading into 2024. So, Rory, State Street has a, a other products that are out there. One of the biggest is, uh, is the, one of the big high-yield funds uh, that you have, J&K out there, uh, which is, I think, a notable one uh, as well. Uh, what else? Um, the gold shares, uh, I have a long relationship with the Spider Gold shares. I was the first person to cover that when it opened in 2004. That tracks gold. It's got gold in a vault, uh, and it tracks the futures, tracks very well there um, as well. Uh, yeah, so there's absolutely. gold. The gold, gold has, I mean, gold last year ended up having some outflows, but gold continues to be a, a very strong product, uh, particularly in times of risk off. Uh, last year, we did see some outflows to the tail end of the year. There was a little bit of risk on emerging. We saw some sell-offs there. But gold, uh, for those who are really concerned about uh, markets and market sentiment, we see uh, inflows into gold. And to your earlier question, when we see outflows in SPY, very often the natural hedge for those SPY outflows is inflows into, GL, into gold, our GLD fund. Um, so you, that's a risk-off expressed in SPY and risk on, uh, sorry, risk off expressed by selling SPY and risk on expressed by, by making a, a, maybe a, almost a asset allocation decision into, into the gold uh, ETF. In relation to JNK, again, significant outflows the first half of 2022, but then in Q4, we actually saw inflows into high yield as there was some element of risk on coming back. And then yeah. finally, just to build on what you're saying about sectors earlier on, it's absolutely right that you're talking about people making asset allocation decisions and it being that simple. In addition to what you talked about in terms of energy, if you look at what happened in 2021, which is very much a risk on year, we had about $20 billion of inflows, new money into this select sector funds. Last year, it was only 2 billion, but you saw this real asset allocation shift. We saw money flowing into healthcare and consumer staples and money flowing out of technology, out of consumer discretionary and particularly out of financials. Yeah. 
I have to say I have a, a, a fondness for the gold ETF because I saw the gold vaults in London. Uh, one of the few people to ever see it, and it's really something to see. A, I mean, a whole room full of gold. Uh, but I never quite got it. I did this whole thing in 2010 about this, and I couldn't find a correlation between gold and inflation. They say it's inflation hedge. I couldn't find a correlation. What I saw was a correlation between the economies and how the economies of India and China were doing, and these were the two biggest purchases of gold. Right. Indians are very large purchasers of gold as a part of their household wealth. That, I, that seemed to be a correlation uh, uh, for me, uh, but it's, it's uh, um, a real asset class. It's become an asset class, commodities in general, but gold is actually an asset class that you can argue people have, unlike, say, maybe Bitcoin, which is not arguably an asset class or has not become an asset Right. Class. So both many advisors and investors will use a slice of their portfolio for gold, but then gold itself, uh, the physical gold that's used that's going to impact the price of it, yeah. is, is widely used within emerging markets. But it, yeah, right, the GLD product, which is a, a strong product, and there's also a, a lower-cost version, GLDM, similar to there's a lower cost version to SPY for more buy and hold investors, it didn't see the same level of demand that you would have thought in that high inflationary environment. We'll see if 2023 is different. Let me ask you a 30,000 foot question, Todd. Do you see any break on ETF growth? I mean, the the whole argument, okay, we got inflows, but where do you see a real down market? Boy, you know, they're not going to, people are going to pull money out. And yet we saw $600 billion in overall inflows into ETFs last year and the worst year in years for stocks and the worst year in decades for bonds still. I mean, what what would actually, if anything, would stop it? If that didn't stop it, I don't know what will. Yeah, so we don't think it will. So we are expecting that there'll be a trillion dollars of net inflows in TETFs in 2023, assuming that we have a more typical year in the equity and fixed income marketplace. We saw two years ago $900 billion of net inflows. You mentioned the roughly $600 billion in 2022. Uh, we think that there's still going to be adoption. You're right. So if, if you owned a mutual fund and you saw how much you were paying in 2022 and saw how much money you lost, you now are likely taking a closer look at these lower cost ETF options, SPY, SPLG, and everybody else that's out there. So we so think we're still going win. to... The low cost indexing still wins, even though the industry is pushing active management to come on and it's still the low cost. It's still that's there. So actively yeah. managed ETFs are, are gaining some share, but people still want to have low cost diversified index based products. Rory, uh, put on your uh, strategist hat here, your themes for ETFs in general in, in 2023. Well, one topic we haven't quite touched on yet, we touched on a little bit with JNK, but I, and I think you've recognized this as well. What really has emerged is the fixed income asset class in ETF space. So coming into the COVID, 2020, there was a big question mark about the resiliency of fixed income ETFs and would they make it through the crisis. Not only do they make it through the crisis, but fixed income ETFs in their own right became that source of price discovery. And people use the fixed income ETFs to under to basically reverse engineer where the underlying bond should be trading. Last year, you saw $200 billion of new money flowed into fixed income ETFs. Um, that was the third best year ever for fixed income ETFs, following on from um, 2020, which was the best every year. And of that 200 billion, a very significant portion, I think about 75 billion flowed into short dated instruments where people were looking for yields. And last year, we know the Fed put the income back into fixed income. People switched to buying fixed income ETFs, particularly ultra short term fixed income ETFs to get that yield. So we're seeing now significant adoption in passive fixed income in addition to passive equity space. And then you also have this new leg of growth we talked about, which is active, both active equity and active fixed income. 
which will take off. And as you said, many asset managers are stepping and putting a toe into that water. But the wrapper there has become the wrapper of choice for many investors. All right. Uh, Rory, congratulations uh, on the 30th anniversary. Uh, it's a big milestone for everybody. And of course, those of us who uh, follow the ETF business, uh, a, a big day uh, as well. Todd, thank you as always. That does it for this week's ETF Edge. My thanks to Rory and Todd. Remember, you can see all of our shows on our website, etfedge.cnbc.com. And you can hear it on our podcast as well, etfedge.cnbc.com. Everybody have a healthy, happy, and safe trading week. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.